0: What's up, fam? This is Jay from Push Black. Let's talk real quick. Now, it's no secret that the economic system is rigged against us. It's hard to get ahead. And that's by design. But we're not stuck. We have more power than you might think. And that's why Push Black is launching a new podcast called Building Black Dollars. On this show, we address the daily issues black folks face financially and the actions we can take right now to solve those problems. We're tackling topics like savings, investing, home and debt management. And we're answering questions about all of this from listeners just like you. Upping our financial literacy is how we make sure our individual financial houses are in order. But let's be clear, individual black wealth won't save our people It's going to take a collective effort. So we're talking about how we can use cooperative economics to build our own system within the larger economy. So if you're trying to get your money right, tune in to Building Black Dollars by Push Black. Catch it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Let's start building together, folks. Peace.
1: at shopify.com/odysseypodcast all lowercase go to shopify.com/odysseypodcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com/odysseypodcast
2: The young girl stood trembling in front of the mirror her stomach lurched but she was not about to back down not now she glanced back at her best friend cowering behind her Candyman, she whispered. Grabbing her best friend's hand, she tried again. Candyman. 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 The light flickered, and the girls screamed. (whistles) This is the story of Candyman. Or at least the sanitized one we've come to know because the origins are far more horrific. Nobody would ever admit it, but they all thought the same thing. Ruthie Mae McCoy was crazy. She would curse at folks passing by, conjuring up the ancestors to hurl drenching rain on their heads. She often chanted to herself as if possessed by some evil spirit. So when she heard voices in the bathroom wall, the one behind her medicine cabinet, she knew something wasn't right. She needed help, but when she asked for it, nobody, including her neighbors and the authorities, believed her. Then, gunshots sounded. Only then, when more people called authorities, did the police finally answer. They arrived. Unscrewed Ruthie Mae's door and entered. But it was too late. She was dead, her frail body already decomposing, flesh rotting and melting into the floor. The noises in the wall were thieves. They had learned about the crawl spaces between the apartments and the neglected housing project where she lived. They went between homes, breaking in through bathroom mirrors. Apparently, Ruthie May tried to defend herself, and she paid with her life. So many times our stories are written off as crazy, our beliefs deemed not respectable enough by mainstream, when in fact they are essential to our well-being. Like Ruthie May, our position in life and our history can be used against us even when our stories have merit especially those we can only access by looking within ourselves or by exploring our ancestral roots, which is something we've been taught to fear. Parts of the horror franchise Candyman, a film in which the title character emerges through bathroom mirrors to murder his victims, it was inspired by Ruthie Mae's true story. Like hers, our stories are sometimes real-life horrors, because externally our Black bodies have been depicted as social zombies, human entities to be feared. It's time we break the curse. Today, we explore the connection between horror, Blackness, and the recovery of ourselves.
0: They say urban legends aren't real, that they're only Cautionary tales to keep unruly children at bay. If only folks knew the horrors that haunt the parables whispered in the dark of night. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Toni Morrison, Octavia Butler. Some of the greatest authors of time have written horror in literary classics. It goes unacknowledged, though, because a horror genre is often considered a joke. On the screen, scary movies depict our people, our ancestors, as monstrous, and many of us buy into this mainstream narrative, not seeing that it's the narrative itself that's the true horror. But I only know so much. So today we're bringing on a scholar and author who can shed light on what's been considered a dark crawl space that we fear to enter. Dr. Kenitra Brooks is the Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies in the Department of English at Michigan State University. She's authored two books, one, Searching for Sycorax, Black Women's Hauntings of Contemporary Horror, and two, Sycorax's Daughters. Call it creepy, call it disturbing. But after this interview with Kenitra, You might call horror the truth. Before we dive into this incredible conversation, we'll hear the urban legend you might think you know so well. This is a story of Candyman. Mainstream will have you think it, but there's nothing scary about our stories. The issues that are being raised up and the way it was raising these issues. Like, if it's doing everything right on the, you know, I'm not sure what the ratings were in terms of the the business. What does Black liberation look like to you?
3: Black liberation looks like to me where the most marginalized of our communities are free, are centered, and allowed to be. So when those who are the least of us are able to be their total and full selves, when we center children, when we center the elderly, when we center Um, our queer brothers and sisters, those who are thought of as the least, then that means all of us will be free. Because if the folks at the bottom got it, all of us got it. And recognizing the value that everyone brings to it and recognizing the strength that is needed and the hard conversations that are necessary for us to get there. And also recognizing and learning to accept that not everybody wants to be free. That's real.
0: So what brought you to this work?
3: I am a second-generation horror fan. So my Aunt Linda and my Aunt Errolyn were horror fanatics. And in the 80s, they took me to go see Vamp at the Joy Theater. And I saw Grace Jones as this Black woman, as a vampire on the big screen and I was sold.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, Tell me more about that. You saw Grace Jones on the big screen. What sold you on that? Was the imagery, the story? Tell me about that experience.
3: Well, I've always liked vampires and zombies. And so to see a Black woman vampire on screen was just amazing to me because, you know, we had seen vampire stories, I'd heard vampire tales, but never one where a Black woman was centered. So seeing her, but also at the same time, even as a kid, I recognized that something was a bit off because in order to make her look monstrous, they exaggerated her Black features. So they made her nose bigger. They made her mouth wider. And she was the main one of the main characters in the film. And she doesn't speak a, a, a word the entire film she's silenced.
0: Wow. That's incredible. So Mm
3: -hmm.
0: as a kid, you were picking up on these things, or was it later when you started noticing more of how they approached this uh, imagery?
3: Well, the first time we saw the film, (laughs) I am the scariest horror scholar ever. So I watch scary movies with my ears plugged up because I hate to jump. So the first time I was terrified. But then my aunt, you know, it was back in the day, so you could stay and watch a movie a couple of times if you wanted. She's like, we're going to watch it again. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but that second time, I started noticing things and I was like, oh, okay, wait, why isn't she talking? Wait, she looks weird. Why are they making her nose look that like that? You know, um, I started making the connections the second time I saw it and I learned then that it's important to digest something and to see something many times before forming a critical opinion.
0: Describe for me, what ways are you working towards that vision of liberation through the work that you do in terms of your your scholarship or even broader than that as well?
3: A couple of things. The first is being from New Orleans and which has often been referred to as a city of the dead and, you know, It's a gothic city, and a lot of horror films and stories begin in New Orleans or surround with the Louisiana Bayou. So a part of what I do is looking at Black women, looking at race, gender, and horror, and Beyonce, (laughs) and all those cool things. (laughs) Nice. Right now, I'm working on uh, Conjure Women, and their place in both popular culture as well as Uh, their history as intellectuals within our community. I also refer to myself as an Afrofuturist. And I think of Afrofuturism as a theory of time. A lot of folks automatically think Black folks in the future, right? But there's also this idea of the recovery project of Afrofuturism. When we go to the future, what are we going to take with us? What are we going to leave behind? As a horror scholar, horror has allowed me to see that a lot of things that have been put up as horrific, as things for us to be scared of, are things that helped us maintain our sanity, maintain our sense of self, and maintain our connection with our ancestors throughout African enslavement. Can
0: we dig into that a little more, that last yeah. point you made, things that we're taught to be scared of?
3: Yeah, I always talk to my students and I give this lecture of you pay money to see Thor, the God of Thunder. And the only reason you are scared of Shango, the God of Thunder, is because of anti-Blackness and the Haitian Revolution. So we were taught to fear those things that were actual sources of strength for us. We're taught to fear the voodoo woman. We're taught to fear the woman practicing Santeria. We're we're taught to uh, fear the hoodoo man, right? But in recovering... Those practices of saying these aren't something, these aren't things that we should fear. Of looking at when Black people create horror themselves, these people become sources of power. These people become community leaders. We get to see these people, how they operated in the community that, you know, kept us going during enslavement. So, my job is not just as a horror scholar, but it's also the recovery work of the spiritual histories and the spiritual practices that we have long participated in.
0: I appreciate that. Let's dig into the history. When you refer to the spiritual history and the practices, how far back can we can we start with that? And what context can you add as it relates to uh, the horror genre?
3: When I speak specifically of the horror genre, we can start back to the early 20th century, Zora Neale Hurston collected these stories in what is now known as Every Tongue Shall Confess. And she collected these Hank tales and these devil tales and these, you know, in Charles Chestnut in the latter part of the 19th century, he did Conjure Woman, which were a collection of tales about conjure and spirituality. So here's the thing, Black folks have always liked horror. Black folks have always liked telling stories about these things. Also, Black folks have always had this sort of uneasy relationship with some of the spiritual practices that we've been taught to be afraid of, right? So, our stories. Uh, Reveal our histories. You know this goes back. We we aren't new to this horror game. It's just that when we do horror, it looks different. It doesn't always look like mainstream horror. When we saw Jordan Peel come out with Get Out, right, and we saw a black horror story written, directed by a black fan of horror, we got to see that. You know, it didn't look like every other horror film out there.
0: There's a lot there. Uh, so let me see where we can start with this. Well, <laughs> and what strikes me off top is that I've not been into horror films for a while. And for me, it was like always made me feel a certain way. Like, why why would I pay to watch, you know, white folks chase each other around with knives? Or like, you know, the mm-hmm. gratuitous gore buying Like, there's something that seems real surface level in a lot of these. And it's reassuring to hear that we have a history of providing a sort of deeper approach, more nuanced approach. And that, what you just touched on, um, I think is getting at why probably myself and others were like really attracted to the films that Jordan Peele uh, has made. Like I like those, but I don't like really any other of the mainstream (laughs) horror movies I've seen. So let's unpack that a little bit. You know, what are there certain tropes that Black creators bring to the table, have historically brought to the table certain ways of of doing it or, or creating in this space? How can we think about this?
3: I think Misha Green's take on Lovecraft Country really displays the breadth of Black horror that there can be because she got to tell the story over 10 hours, right? So we get where... Black horror doesn't divorce itself from Blackness, from gender, from queerness. You know, all those things are part of us, right? Because what we're afraid of reflects who we are. This is why white folks have been scared of Black folks for so long. And a lot of horror films are about being afraid of Black folks or other people of color, And women, gender, queerness, right? So that, again, shows that we aren't just playing on our fears, but we're exploring them. We're saying that they have a social implication. And they're saying how we have dealt with ourselves by being everyone else's boogeyman. So we get to see all these different iterations, Of Black horror. And and that's why I wrote the Safe Negro Guide to Lovecraft Country, because I'm like, Black folks like horror. They just don't always know it. And I was like, if I can take this and translate this show and start pointing out to all the areas of Blackness and all the way Black folks have enjoyed horror and manifest horror throughout this show and throughout history, that we've always done this right? Then I can let black folks know, you know, there's something here, right? Give horror a chance.
0: And that's another one. I forgot about that. Lovecraft Country was incredible. And I'm was, it was so sad good. to hear that they're not bringing that back, right?
3: No, they are not bringing it back.
0: That's unfortunate. Um, but-
3: I have so many thoughts.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I dig into them. What are, what are your thoughts on that?
3: I think it's interesting who we choose to invest in and what stories they felt necessary to continue to tell. You know, it was nominated for awards. It had the ratings and it shows that you can do and display everything white folks expect you to do and they will change the rules.
0: For sure. Hit the nail on the head. They did all the things they were supposed to do. We got the accolades it was supposed to get. Um,
3: Trended on Twitter, sure. part of the cultural zeitgeist. For sure, you know, even me being slightly associated with it, right, through my articles, my career took a whole different turn with
0: it. Oh well, I didn't
3: realize. You that. know, you know, in a good way.
0: I wonder how much of that had to do
3: with. The they were pretty way. solid. They were, they were, they were solid ratings. Than I than- mean, they weren't Game of Thrones, but they were doing really solid ratings. Right. I think there were very fair critiques of the show. But I would also say that Misha Green was one of the few creators, series creators, and series runners who ate it and said, "You know, I, can we cuss?
0: Speak um, no. as you want to. We'll bleep it if we need to." But you know, <laughs> okay,
3: she that. was one of she's one of the few creators who's come out and said, "I should have done better on that. I didn't. That didn't hit like I wanted to hit. And I'll do better next time." Hmm. Right. For me, that's saying that she's listening to her audience, that's saying that she's listening to her critiques and not just people kissing her butt about it, and that she wants to do better.
0: So I'm not aware of the critiques. Um, Share one or two that, you know, uh, you may be referring to now.
3: In episode four, there was the killing of an indigenous trans woman. You Mm. see what Misha and company were trying to do, but it wasn't handled correctly. It wasn't done well. It it, it was wrong. And um, I say that in my article. And she came out and said it was wrong. You know, we got the fiasco that was Game of Thrones in the last couple of seasons. And they just let those white boys do what they wanted to do. Threw money at them. Would have thrown more at them. They did so many wrong and and just shitty things. And that's why I say white folks will change the rules on you.
0: For sure. For sure. And mm-hmm. I think this is uh, one of many prime examples of, you know, why we we got to continue fighting to be the ones who are making the rules and holding ourselves accountable in a different way, you know? Tell me about the the book specifically around... Black women in horror. What's the name of the book?
3: The name of the book is called Searching for Sycorax, Sycorax. Black Women's Hauntings of Contemporary Horror. I published that. And along with that, I co-edited an anthology of short horror fiction written by Black women called Sycorax's Daughters. And um, Sycorax is actually a character in Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. And Sycorax is Caliban's mother. She's usually seen as a black or African woman or a woman of color. And Prospero, who's the lead character, basically comes to her land. It's about colonization. And he kills her and enslaves her son, Caliban. So this, you know, usually has all these conversations about blackness in Europe and, you know, white men and domination and all of these things. And, Sycorax, though she is dead in the play, though Prospero has pretty much won, right? He killed her. He took her land. He enslaved her son. He's still always talking about her all the damn time. And he's like, Sycorax, that black witch and all these things. And it's like she haunts the play. So using Bell Hooks' term, I refer to... Um, her as an absent presence. She's absent, but she's always there because y'all always still talking about her. And I use that as a metaphor for Black women in horror. Like you don't see us, but the effects of us are always there because so much of horror is about race. So much of horror is about gender. And when you have these conversations, you have to, you either talk about Black women, or if you don't talk about them, the reverberations of not talking about them are felt.
0: Well, wow. okay. Share some examples um, so I can understand what you mean by that.
3: Mainstream horror criticism has done a lot with gender. And one of the major theories of mainstream horror, particularly slasher films, is this theory of the final girl. And this Professor Carol Clover, she talks about how it's pretty much the final girl. She is uh, the one that survives the film. She's the one that kills the slasher. And she becomes, she starts off as sort of androgynous, uh, slightly feminine. And as the film goes on, and, and the slasher is very male because they are penetrating bodies with a knife or with an ax, with a machete or these sorts of things. And they sort of change gender, right? So at the end, the final girl is masculine. She's kicking ass. She's stabbing the slasher herself. She's the one doing the killing while the the slasher himself is one who's cowering. And so you get this sort of switching of the gendering of them at the final film. That's, you know, sort of classic horror theory. But when you start off, when the the final girl is Black, and one of the major stereotypes about Black women is that we are masculine because of our dark skin and we are not properly feminine, then her whole theory falls apart. And so my intervention where I talk about is, You know, how do we start to create theories that deal specifically with Black women in horror? What does it look like when Black women themselves start writing horror? right? Black women then start to adapt and adopt. They write a lot about spiritual practices, about African spiritual practices. They write a lot about these practitioners being the people who solve problems, the people who you go to. do has a novel called The Good House. And with The Good House, a slight spoiler here, the house has been cursed by a bokor or an evil practitioner of voodoo, right? A, A male practitioner. And so it causes the problems, but the only way to solve the problems and for them to reach happiness is for her to remember the practices of her grandmother and for her to employ her own spiritual practices that were hidden by her family so that they can defeat the evil. So it's not just that the African practices are the bad guy. They're also the solution to the problem. Right. And so much of this is about recovering who her grandmother was and who the women in her family were and their powers and their strengths. So, This is also why I released The Sycorax's Daughters, because so many times I heard, oh, Black women don't do horror. Black women aren't fans of horror. I don't know what you're talking about. They don't write horror. There are no Black women horror writers. And the best way to get me to do something is to piss me off and tell me Black women don't do something, (laughs) (laughs) especially when I know that they do. And so I was like, not only am I going to put out this book of criticism, I'm going to put out a whole 400-page book of Black women doing nothing but writing horror so you can't ever say that we don't write horror again.
0: That's amazing. I appreciate you sharing that and doing this work uh, overall. And as we know, unfortunately, even many of us in our community, uh, are we feel a certain way about what we call voodoo, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Can you help Give some context to that. You know, there might be listeners out there right now who are like, well, yeah, I'd be, you know, <laughs> scared too. I wouldn't want to involve myself in that. But I think there's a lot of history there that obviously is too much to dig into right now. But if you can give some context for that and how that real like historical context connects with what you're referring to in this story.
3: Yes. Um, a couple of ways. One, the reason, the major reason we are scared of it is because The practices, the spiritual meetings that happened before the Haitian Revolution took place, the planning for it, the prayers for it, and the belief in it came from the enslaved Africans practicing Vodou right? There was a ceremony at Bois Kemen, you know, the sort of fictional factional history of it, of the night before the revolution, where the leaders of the Vodou community, the priests and priestesses, they sacrificed an animal. I believe it was a Black pig. Then they went off and damn near killed everybody who 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 enslaved them. This scared white people. And this, you know, There were anti-Black traditional practices beforehand, but this was the crackdown. So we are literally afraid of that which gave us the power to be revolutionaries. I always ask my Black students, who does it benefit for you to be afraid of this? Does it benefit you? Also, not to mention that Black folks going to bring their Africanaity in no matter what they do. And I talk about this a lot because I grew up in a Black Baptist church. And a lot of what we practice as Black Protestants are remnants of our African practices. Our music, white folks don't have a drum section, right? They don't have the spiritual dancers that we have. I forget the name. I can't think of the name right now, right? White folks don't shout. I have been around and also Black folks. I have shouted myself, gotten happy, and I've also been written by an ancestor. Same thing. It looks the exact same. It feels the same. Right? So whether it's the Holy Ghost or an ancestor, Black folks will keep their Africanized practice. And I think that makes people uncomfortable. Haiti was the jewel of the Caribbean. They sold sugar. Being enslaved on a sugar plantation was one of the most dangerous forms of enslavement ever. People died left and right. People didn't live to the age of 30. And why should they care? Because they could keep in bringing in more Africans from the West and central coasts of Africa. It was horrific. And I always say, like, you know... One, this is what gave these people the power. But if they made a deal with the devil to get out of that hell, who are you to judge? And it was hell that white folks put them in. I, you know, I just don't believe that white Jesus.
0: Amen to that.
3: <laughs> black Jesus. I'm all into black Jesus. But white Jesus? Nah.
0: Forget your exact words. But you're saying that power that gave us liberation, we've been taught to. To disregard, not even disregard it, just to look at it with horror and disdain.
3: To be afraid, and be afraid of. It. of it. And to be afraid of, but also like this kills me because, you know, black Christian folks will say, like, you know, my guardian angel, my grandmother's my guardian angel. But when I say my grandmother, my ancestor, all of a sudden it's evil. Just the the lies we tell ourselves and who does it empower for us to be afraid of our ancestors. Yeah
0: and so through the genre of horror you've uncovered and you're highlighting the ways that we and black women specifically have been able to dig deeper into our past and history and the those practices
3: because so much of mainstream mm-hmm. horror we're we're monstrous or we're doing voodoo and we're dancing around and you know screaming and throwing chickens and stuff like that and it's seen as Not just evil, but comical as well. Black folks and their spiritual practices are a lot more complex than that. There's a complexity there that hasn't always been respected or acknowledged. And when Black folks write horror, those complexities are there.
0: Appreciate that. So Mm -hmm. you've mentioned a couple of times this idea of the conjure woman. Can you talk about, give more context, both in, you know, in the world we live in and in literature created by Black folks?
3: Okay. So Conjure is a set of practices, particular, particular to the Black South, right? Conjure, with the migration, it, you know, moved to the North and to the West. But it is inherent to the Black South. And it's a set of practices of its root work. Um, some people refer to it as hoodoo. Not voodoo, hoodoo, Um, but it is sort of the supplemental spiritual work as well as medicinal practices that a lot of Black folks practice, right? I want to be clear. Most of the folks, most of the Black folks, and particularly the Black women who practiced or do continue to practice conjure, identify as Christians. And I want to always pay homage to that because my great-grandmother was also one of the founding members of our family church. And so we have to talk about these connections that are here. And my great-grandmother defined herself as a Christian, a Black Christian woman. And I will always acknowledge that and privilege that because that was her own self-definition. But I also, in, you know, listening to family stories and going back and, you know, hearing about, you know, how even she healed me, that she knew different ways. She had this knowledge, right? And these things came from our our relationships with our African ancestors and the knowledge that was passed down and the practices that were passed down and that we inherit. So as we see a lot of folks starting to grow plants, a lot of folks farming, a lot of folks, you know, doing the medicinal work along with the spiritual work. That's us re-inheriting what was lost, right, when we got to be middle class black folks, when we got to be city folk. Right. And so we are noticing even in the culture around us on Instagram, on Snapchat, we're getting video of black folks reclaiming these practices. So I start to look at it as, you know, these are intellectual histories of black women. Right. These women were philosophers. They were creating knowledge. Right. These women were botanists. These women were doctors. It was the medicine and the spiritual counsel that was going on there. And a lot of my work is about, I'm working on my, my new book now, and it's about reclaiming those histories and acknowledging and tracing the lineage of them from West and Central Africa, tracing the lineage of them through the Caribbean, through the U.S. South. Right. And I'm looking at it through black women as a whole, but also through the specific story of the women in my family on my mother's side.
0: That's powerful. So what do you think happens if we are able to reclaim that on a large scale?
3: New worlds will literally open up. Mm. We say we want liberation and we want freedom. You know, do we even have the imaginary capacity to think of what that could be? What did our ancestors think it was? What can we learn from them? We can't plan from the future without knowing our past. That's classic Afrofuturism. You must use the past to assess in the present and move forward to the future. When we were enslaved and moving into our post-emancipatory lives, they were often midwives. Once we were emancipated, conjure women got it from both sides. So they were often midwives and healers. And with the emancipation of enslavement, you also have, uh, at the same time, the rising of obstetrics and gynecology as a medicinal practice, as an official medicinal practice. And so you started having the beginning of the medical industrial complex and them saying, oh, why are you letting that midwife, why are you letting uh, your nanny help you give birth to your baby? You need to come to a hospital. You need to be with a doctor. That's the proper way. That's what women who want their babies to be healthy are doing. So these women were losing not just this income, but this knowledge was being lost. At the same time, you have the rise of the Black preacher who is male, right? And they're saying, you know... Conjure women were also an economic threat to the black church because people were going to them and giving them money and, you know, doing spiritual practices with them as well. Right. So you would go pray on Sunday morning. But, you know, Saturday you went to your little hoodoo lady and got your business handled. Right. If stuff wasn't moving fast enough and they were an economic threat as well as a spiritual threat to the black church, the traditional black church. We were doing respectability politics, and we wanted to prove that we were good Negroes. And so they got to be, you know, they're evil. They're bad.
0: We had these economic, these intellectual, spiritual tensions. There's self-hate there that we were taught to have and begin to view this work as something completely different than what we previously did. Um, But you're saying that from what you're seeing there seems to be a a resurgence and a reclamation of that today.
3: Yeah, I definitely think so. I think folks aren't as afraid afraid of, you know, I also think a lot of this goes with, you know, folks moving back South, Mm. reverse migration, as folks realizing that not everything Southern is backwards, as folks starting to value the different ways of knowing that our ancestors had and knowing that compromises were made so that we could move forward. I want to also hold space for the people that made those compromises. Now I am going backwards in our family to value these knowledge practices because my family sacrificed. I was able to go out and get a PhD. So those things have to be held appreciating what was done for us. I don't want us to demonize those sacrifices that were made and not pay attention to them because that's what put food on the table. So we can now talk about
0: them. Mm. So more nuance.
3: There has to be more nuance. There has to be no more nuance for us. The past, present and future are all happening at once because as I stand here, talking about and planning for the future and existing in the present right now. My ancestors are also here around me as my past. We're all existing here together.
0: All right. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit Black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about Black history. You matter, and your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we realize we have to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at BlackHistoryYear.com. Most people give about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes it different. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, Jarea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Graciela Mayo Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Akwia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Marcel Hutchins and Sidney Smith. Joanna Samuels is our audio engineer who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. Peace.